0: Welcome to New Branch as the kids and their leaders are making their way to their classes. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Acts chapter 27. We're almost there. We've got one more chapter to go, just a couple more weeks in this book. And what comes next is Jonah, which is appropriate for the passage of Scripture that we're reading from today in the 27th chapter. In this chapter, Dr. Luke records for us in riveting detail Paul's voyage over the sea from Caesarea to Rome, and it is no luxury cruise. It is, in fact, a story of death-defying, seafaring voyage in the middle of a violent storm at sea. And again, it reminds us of another man who gets caught in the middle of a storm at sea, The guy named Jonah that we're going to be covering in just a couple of weeks. But as we'll see when we look at that book, Jonah was running from God. And he was running from God's mission for him, but not so with Paul. Paul is neither running from God, and he's certainly not running from God's mission for him. He's fully engaged with it. With Jonah, God's purpose in sending the storm was corrective. It was to redirect Jonah, to redirect the prophet from disobedience to obedience. But what was the purpose For the storm that God sent to Paul here. I think there are three reasons for this purpose that we'll unpack as we look at this chapter. First, there was a missional reason. God was still working through Paul. Just as he did in the two-year stint in jail in Caesarea... God has divine appointments for Paul along the way to Rome. He's getting him to Rome so he can get the gospel to the nations, but he's got divine appointments for him along the way. He's got divine appointments for Paul to preach the gospel to the crew on this ship, to the other prisoners on this ship, and to those on the island of Malta where he will shipwreck, as we'll see next week. it has got a missional reason, but secondly... There is a sanctifying reason here for Paul. God is not only working through Paul, but God is still working on Paul. As Jesus told Ananias in Damascus, as Ananias was going to anoint Saul, the newly converted Saul, to go and preach the good news, Jesus shows up to Ananias and tells him For I will show him, that is, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In Paul's life, suffering was used for the purpose of conforming him to the image of Christ. And Paul is learning an important lesson here. A lesson about which he wrote in his second letter to to the Corinthians just a few years prior to this. When he said in Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, that Jesus' power is made perfect in weakness. And so that's why Paul boasts in his weakness, because through that, and through those times, Jesus' grace is seen as sufficient, and his power is perfected in that. So there's a missional reason, a sanctifying reason, and thirdly, there's an instructive reason here. Because God's not only working on Paul, he's working on us. He's working on you and I right now. Because in God's sovereignty, this incredible narrative of Paul's seafaring voyage and the storm at sea and the, and the ultimate, ultimately the, the shipwreck on Malta is recorded for all of eternity on the pages of scripture for you and I. And as Paul will later write to his protege Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so there's something here for you and I where we will be equipped For some kind of good work. So it's not just a fascinating story. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's instructive to us. And its instructiveness goes well beyond the knowledge of how to navigate a first century ship in a first century storm. But that's the question for us this morning. What's the lesson here for us as we walk through this narrative of a storm at sea? And how do we apply this lesson to our lives? In a word, how will God use an incredible story of storm and shipwreck to cause us to be conformed to look more like his son Jesus? How will he use it towards that end? We learn from this chapter that Paul trusted in who God was and trusted in his promises even in the midst of storms he had faith and he had hope when the circumstances were hopeless and so for us i hope that we walk away from this story this morning reminded first that storms will come storms are going to come in life but god is faithful god is trustworthy god is present and god is sovereign and based on who he is he will keep all of his promises to us no matter how high the winds how high the waves go and how hard the winds blow so let's read acts chapter 27 and see this for ourselves And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the winds did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed... and the voyage was now dangerous because of even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would turn aground, run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night as we were driven along across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20, 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, under pretense of laying out anchors, from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship, ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength." For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, "'But noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. "'So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, "'at the same time loosening the ropes that had tied the rudders, "'then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. "'But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. "'The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. "'The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape.' But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for the privilege to gather as your people this morning and sing praises to you and now turn to your word to be encouraged to be instructed, for Father, we are well convinced that storms are a part of life in a fallen world, whether we're in one now or about to be in one or just came out of one. Storms are a reality, and yet you're with us, just as you were with Paul. And may the promises that you have given to us. Lead us to take heart and be encouraged as Paul and the men of the ship were by the promise that you made to him. Instruct us, Lord, in such a way that we will be prepared for the storms when they come and ready to be your faithful worshipers and servants in the midst of them. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do is divide this narrative, this incredible narrative that Luke gives with such incredible detail. I mean, it, it, it lays out like a movie, does it not? I want to divide this into four sections and then just seek to draw out some application as we walk through this passage together. The first section is in verses 1 through 8, where we see the trip to Fair Havens. One of the first things that we notice in this section is the pronoun we. We haven't seen that for quite a while, but we see it all over the place in this section and all throughout this chapter and on into chapter 28. And what that tells us is that the writer of this book is with Paul here. Luke is with him on this boat. He's been with him the entire time from the third missionary journey until now. We didn't hear anything about him in Jerusalem or in Caesarea as Paul was standing trial because the focus for Luke was on Paul and what he did and what he endured during that time. But now we see that Luke is with Paul here on the ship and will continue with him to Rome. In fact, many scholars will say that Luke more than likely wrote his gospel account and probably wrote at least a large portion, or at least gathered a large portion of the material for this very book, the book of Acts, during that two-year stint while Paul was in prison in Caesarea. So Paul is not alone here on this trip. He's got Luke. He's got this guy named Aristarchus. Aristarchus is the same one who came to faith, this man from Macedonia in Thessalonica, whom Paul left in Philippi and then then picked him back up on his third journey, he's been with Paul this entire time and will also continue with him all the way to Rome. And we're even told in Paul's letters as he writes his letters from prison that Aristarchus was a great comfort to him during that time. There's also many prisoners with Paul. We're told later that there are 276 people on this boat. And probably less than a third of those are crew and soldiers. And so a lot of them were fellow prisoners along with Paul, and they're all heading to Rome. And this journey will be long, much longer than they expected. It will be circuitous, it won't be a direct route, and it will be stormy. And so they set out from Caesarea. Now, I'm going to try my best to kind of follow along as we look on this map. So they set out here from Caesarea. Isn't that cool? Thank you, Thank you Savills, for your cat toy that you gave to me. Uh, they set out from Caesarea. That's where they were. And they go to Sidon. And in Sidon, the centurion that's in charge of Paul lets him go to land and meet with his friends, so there's a kindness there on the part of the centurion, which bodes well for Paul later in the trip. And then he says that they went out from Sidon under the lee of Cyprus. Now the word lee basically means the part of the island that's protected from the wind and the waves. And so they, they follow this uh, under the lee of Cyprus, and we're told there in that verse that they do this because the winds were against us. Now, it's it's not a storm yet. It's just an annoying headwind that causes them to adjust their course. So, So they don't set out from Sidon and go straight over to Rome. They go around the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. They were just annoying headwinds at this point. You see, sometimes... Storms of life come across, come upon us suddenly, like a tornado. But other times they start out very subtly, and it's just a headwind, and it's just an annoyance. But oftentimes that annoying headwind is a precursor of the storms that are brewing. Sometimes the headwinds are just that they're annoyances and, and, and nothing more. But Other times they grow into full-blown hurricanes that wreak havoc on our lives. And yet, God is still there and he's still in control. And so they they sail along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. And you'll recall from his journeys that he had spent much time in that area of southern Galatia. There is Lystra. Lystra derby iconium all places here where he brought the gospel but he wasn't a missionary on land anymore now he was a prisoner on a boat and so they make their way to myra and when they get to myra they switch they switch boats this ship from adramidium is going to go up to adramidium where it's from to that port And so the centurion finds a ship from Alexandria, which is down here in Egypt, and they set sail on another boat. But in that passage, we're given another indication of a brewing storm. Verse 7 says, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. We arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And he says, the winds did not allow us to go farther, and so we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon. And so they're, they're trying to get where? They're trying to get to Rome, up here. And they would rather take a direct route, but they can't because of the wind. And the wind continues to get worse and worse and worse to the point where it's. he says, it would allow us to go no further. We can't keep heading west. We have to give way to the storm now. And so they do so, and they sail under the lee of Crete. Again, the wind is coming down from the north here, so they can't continue westward, and so they go south to be protected under the lee of Crete. And they come to a place there on Crete. And again, he tells us in verse 8, with great difficulty we come to a place called Crete fair havens. And that ends the first leg of the journey. And at this point in chapter 27, the, the, the narration of the navigation of the journey ceases, and there's this disagreement between Paul and the crew and the centurion about how to proceed. So that's the second section. Luke tells us that this journey was made even more dangerous because of the time of year that it was. He says in verse 9 that the fast had already passed. The fast that he refers to is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur is later this month. It's at the end of September. And apparently in this part of the world, during the month of September or, or beginning shortly thereafter, in the sea there, this is their storm season. We have hurricane season here in the early fall and they apparently have something similar in the Mediterranean from September through January and so Paul's advice to them is let's winter here in Fairhaven let's just set up shop here let's let's winter here make it through with with, with let the storms pass and then we'll pick up the journey again in the spring that's his advice to them but the sailors don't want to do that. Fairhaven is not a nice place for them to spend the winter. It's situated in such a way that it's vulnerable to winds and waves. And so they, they don't, nobody likes to stay the, 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 the winter in Fairhaven. It, it's actually mis—it's a misnomer. It's not fair at all. And so they say, we don't want any of this. That will be uncomfortable. That will be hard. And the owner of the ship, likewise, he wants to make progress because he's not going to get paid until the cargo reaches its destination. And so he argues for continuing westward. Paul gets outvoted. His wisdom and logic. Remember, he's already written 2 Corinthians where he says, I've been shipwrecked three times. Right? He's already been shipwrecked three times. He's got significant seafaring wisdom here. But they ignore it. And they decide to set out from Fairhaven and continue westward in hopes of reaching Phoenix, which is on the western coast of Crete. And that decision to leave Fairhaven and continue their journey westward proved to be a terrible and fateful decision because it ends up and results in them battling against a violent storm for two entire weeks, after which they end up shipwrecking on the island of Malta. So there's a lesson here for us. And that is that sometimes in the middle of storms, logic and reason go out the window. Sometimes in storms, logic and reason can be easily ignored and overlooked in favor of what in favor of finding comfort somewhere, in favor of finding something easy and less hard. And so logic and reason are often ignored. And in the middle of these storms, advice comes at us from lots of different places and sources, right? And so we have to be very careful the advice that we listen to and the advice that we heed in these storms. But they don't heed Paul's advice and they begin making their way to Phoenix on the western coast of Crete and that leads to our third section of the narrative, the tempestuous nor'easter. As they head out from Fair Havens, at first they have the benefit of this gentle southerly breeze and they think that they've got it made. But soon that gentle breeze gives way to what Luke calls in verse 14 a tempestuous wind called the northeaster. In Greek, it is called the Eurokludon. Literally, it is the wind from the east. Famous in that day, the nor'easter as we would call it in New England. And that word that is translated tempestuous there is the Greek word typhonikos which is where we get our English word, typhoon. The point is, this was a massive storm. High winds, raging seas. And this ship from Alexandria was no match for it. It drives them southward, immediately driving them off off course. Instead of going to Rome, they start heading for the shallows of Sirtis, An area here off the coast of North Africa that was famous for its shallows and its ability to cause ships to run aground. That's exactly where they're headed now. And there's very little that they can do to stop that. And they're likely to perish. And so they began doing everything that they can to fight against this storm and try to weather this storm as long as they possibly can. Perhaps it will pass. What do they do? They do a number of things. First, in verse 16 and 17, they pull in the lifeboat. They hoist it. The lifeboat was, was a, a boat that they pulled behind them, it was towed behind them. And when, when there were rough seas, they would pull it in and, and secure it on the deck. That lifeboat represented their only means of rescue if they had to abandon ship. It wouldn't hold everyone. But everyone who got on board the lifeboat would be saved. So that's the first thing they do is they cling to the lifeboat and make sure that it is fastened in place and secured on deck. And friends, isn't it good to know that when the storms of life come, and they will come, is Jesus. He is our only source of, of rescue and that our lifeboat never leaves us he's always with us and in those stormy times of life it is only natural and good and right for us to cling to jesus even more tightly than we normally do and So, friend is jesus your lifeboat. There is no other means of rescue from this storm that's brewing for all of us called judgment. It's a storm that's coming and we're we're, we're heading right into it because of our sin and our rebellion against God. God has provided a means of rescue through Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life and died in our place so that we who put our trust in him and cling to Christ as our only hope for rescue, we might be saved from that storm. If Jesus is not your lifeboat, and friends, you don't have one, and that storm is coming. And so we cling to Jesus for rescue but when the storms of life come, we find ourselves clinging to Jesus even more tightly in the middle of those storms. Secondly, we're told that they undergird the ship. In verse 17, we're told that they used supports to undergird the ships. These were massive cable-like ropes and it's incredible what they did with these things. And, and, and this is part of because of how they made ships back then. They just weren't as sturdy as they are today. And so when the, when the waves got high and the winds got, got strong, what they would do is they would take these massive ropes and they would pull them across the deck and then run them under the hull over and over again and tighten them up so that it might cause the ship to strengthen so that it would not be torn to pieces by the waves. What are those things for us that undergird us, that undergird our faith so that the waves don't rip us apart? Well, first of all, Jesus. Jesus undergirds us. The one who stood up in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when the disciples were afraid that they were going to die because of the great storm that that came up on the Sea of Galilee. And he commanded the winds and the waves peace be still. This is the Jesus who is with us every moment of every day in the midst of these storms. Jesus undergirds us and He holds us tight even when we don't cling to him so tightly. He undergirds us and keeps us from being ripped apart by the winds and the waves. Secondly, the word of God undergirds us. As we read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word, we're reminded of truth. And we're reminded of his precious promises. And this undergirds us in the storms of life. Let me just give you a sampling of some of those precious promises that undergird us. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Psalm 34, verse 18 The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 55, verse 2 Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Psalm 73 verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Isaiah 40, the women are starting Isaiah this week, and we're going to study Isaiah beginning in January here on Sunday morning. Isaiah 40 verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Church, we need to be people who saturate our lives with the word of God so that when the storms of life come, these scriptures and the hope and the promise that is ours that we find in them will undergird our faith so that we are not ripped apart by the storms. Brothers and sisters, saturate your life with the scriptures. Read them, study them, memorize them, meditate on them, and believe them. Believe them. First, because of what they are. They are God's holy and inspired word. But secondly, because of what they do, they undergird us when the storms come. And then thirdly, we're undergirded by by the church, by the body of Christ. By fellow believers. So that when the storms come, we will hold one another together. You realize that there are nearly 60 one another commands in the scriptures. Love one another. Care for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. On and on and on and on. Why do we have those commands? It's because we need one another. And that's how God designed us so that when the storms come for one of us or for all of us we can undergird one another in all of these ways and hold each other tight so that our faith is made stronger and we're not ripped apart by the waves we're undergirded by jesus the scriptures and one another in the body of christ Paul and his companions here are undergirded by these cables that encircle the entire ship and hold it fast. What else do they do to fight against the storm and weather the storm? We're told that they put out a sea anchor. At the end of verse 17, Luke writes that they lowered, quote, the gear. Now, most other English translations will translate that phrase as the sea anchor. They put out the sea anchor. In fact, the ESV, if you're using that as I do, it includes that as a note there, that, that this was the sea anchor that they put in. What is a sea anchor? Well, a sea anchor was something that they put in the water to help orient the ship so that it was facing the waves head on, so that it can hit the waves from the bow of the ship, because that was the strongest part of the ship. If the wave hit the ship from the side or from the stern, it would have a disastrous effect. The way they build ships, both back then and today, they designed them to head into stormy weather. And so they put a sea anchor out in order to pull the ship's bow to head directly into the waves in order to weather the storm better. And I think it's safe for us to say that that which undergirds our faith also serves as a sea anchor for our soul in the midst of storms. Our relationship with Jesus is an anchor. Our lives being saturated with the Word of God is an anchor for us. And biblical community within the body of Christ is an anchor for us. These are our sea anchors and they they ensure that we're not broadsided by the waves, but rather we're facing into them with truth, hope, love, and an eternal perspective that looks beyond those waves to the clear skies that are ahead, whether those clear skies come in this life or in the next. And then lastly, in fighting against this storm, they they jettisoned the cargo. The purpose of throwing off the cargo was to lighten the ship and make it more buoyant so that it might not run aground in the shallows. And it certainly makes sense for us, church, to consider the extra weight in our lives and be willing to throw it off. So that the storms of life don't run us aground in the shallows. I think this is part of what the writer of Hebrews was after. When he writes those famous words in Hebrews 12, the first couple of verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. The New American Standard calls it encumbrances. Encumbrances things that encumber our progress. Let us throw aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we're to, first of all, throw off the sin that clings, Certainly we're to throw off sin that keeps us from fixing our eyes on Jesus, but he distinguishes between the sin that clings and the extra, excess baggage, the extra weight, the encumbrances that keep us from focusing our eyes on Jesus. What are those things that are the extra weight in your life and mine that keep us from running the race with endurance, the race that he has set before us? and sailing smoothly without running aground. They might include activities or things that we take part in that distract us from focusing our eyes on Jesus. What is it in your life, is there anything in your life that distracts you from focusing your eyes on Jesus? That could be an extra weight that needs to be jettisoned. And it needs to be jettisoned before you run aground, because then it's too late. They might also be uh, beliefs or, or, or thoughts that are wrong that keep us from looking to Jesus, that weigh us down. And so we need to jettison legalism in favor of grace. We need to jettison self-reliance in favor of a wholehearted reliance on Christ who is in us. We need to jettison this American Christianity thought of of isolation and independence and individualism in favor of a biblical community and a mutual dependence on one another. What is the extra weight in your life, the extra cargo that you need to jettison? And the key is we need to jettison it before we hit the shallows and before that storm comes because then it's too late. But here's the thing. In spite of all that they do to fight against this storm and try to weather this storm, they, they secure the lifeboat, they, they undergird the ship, they put out the sea anchor, they jettison the extra cargo, and yet the storm wins. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And when all hope is lost, it's then that we need to be encouraged most. And that leads us to the fourth section of our narrative in verses 21 through 26 where Paul encourages the crew. Luke tells us that they had been without food for many days, partly because they were probably rationing their supplies, partly because they were too busy fighting against the storm to stop and eat lunch. But they hadn't eaten for many days and so Paul stands up among them and he tells them, take heart. He tells them this twice. Take heart, men. In other words, be encouraged. And what was the source of the encouragement that he was offering to them? Well, he gives them really good news. There will be no loss of life among you. None of you are going to die because of this storm. And how does he come by this good news? By a promise from God. Let's read again how Paul reports what happened, beginning in verse 23. He says, for this very night, this is what he tells the men, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So Paul identifies the angel as the angel of the God To whom I belong and whom I worship. That is absolutely key. Don't miss that. Paul identifies himself as the one who belongs to God and the one who is a worshiper, a servant of God. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to make it through the storms of life, they're going to come our way, then we need to be reminded that we belong to God, we are His children. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are His. We belong to Him and He will care for His own. Furthermore, our identity, identity is that of a worshiper and servant of God. It's not what we do, it's who we are. And so even in the midst of the storm... We praise Him, we worship Him, we glorify Him both with our lips and with our lives because that's who we are. We are worshipers and servants of our King. And we trust Him because we know Him. We know that He's with us because, again, we belong to Him. We know that He is faithful and that His love never ends. And that He is, as we r- r- saying earlier, steadfast. We know this about Him. We know that He is sovereign that, and that all that He does and all that He allows, even the storms, are for our good and His glory. Romans eight twenty eight. And so even in the midst of the storms, we praise Him and glorify Him and serve Him as our good and loving Father. So Paul says that an angel showed up to me. What did the angel say? Verse 24. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This echoes the prophecy that Jesus gave to Paul directly back in Jerusalem when Paul was in the barracks after having been arrested. Jesus shows up to him that, that night and says, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome. And so God was using the angel here to reiterate his promise to Paul. You're going to Rome, Paul. I'm going to get you there because I'm going to get the gospel to the nations. The angel says, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. The fact that he says God has granted this to you infers to us that That Paul had been praying for them. Paul had been interceding for the other 275 passengers on this boat. I'm not nearly as other-centered as Paul here. I'm not sure I would have used this time to be praying for others when my own life was at risk, but Paul did. He was praying for his fellow shipmates. Now, as good as this news was from the angel... It was only encouraging to the men because Paul believed it. Look at verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. What a great thing for you and I to be able to say, That we would take heart and be encouraged because we have faith in God that it will be exactly as we have been promised it will be. And so here's the lesson for us encouragement comes from trusting that God will keep every single one of his promises. Consider for just a moment some of the promises that he's made to us. Again, from Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. We sang this earlier. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The promise of God's presence and help that He will help His children and He'll never leave them. There's the promise of God's ever present, unchanging, and unconditional love for us, as Paul articulates it in Romans 8. Go and read the second half of Romans 8 on your own time, but here's what it ends with. For I am sure, he's sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great promise for us to cling to, especially in the storms. Not even the storms, no, ba- no matter how bad they get, no matter how long they last, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we have the promise of how God will pull a drawstring on the timeline of eternity and He will make all things new. He'll bring in the new heaven and the new earth and we will be with our Redeemer forever in a place where there is no more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. We will be with Him in glory. God's Word is filled with thousands of promises from God to His people. Promises to instruct us, to give us peace, to to go before us and always be with us, promises to give rest to the weary and heavy laden, to renew our strength, to persevere us to the end, and on and on and on. And we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Incredible. In other words, all the promises that God has given to us are going to be fulfilled because of and through Jesus Christ and what He finished on the cross and His resurrection. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And of course, the greatest promise of all is the one that Jesus Himself gave to Nicodemus the Pharisee in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, will not perish, will not get what they deserve, will not, will not be subject to the coming storm of judgment, but will have everlasting life. These are the promises that undergird our faith and serve as sea anchors for our soul in the midst of storms. So let us learn to lean on these promises and believe them through faith so that we may, like these prisoners and fellow shipmates, take heart and be encouraged when the winds and waves come crashing over our bow. So this is good news for them, that everyone on board is going to make it through this storm. But it will involve some suffering and misfortune. As we read in verse 28, how Paul concludes the words from the angel, but we must run aground on some island. We're all going to make it, guys. Not one of us is going to die, but the ship won't make it, and we will run aground. There are even rougher seas ahead. And the remainder of this chapter is the story of how God's promise to Paul through that angel happened exactly as was promised to him. And so that last section Verse 27 through 44 is of him and his shipmates approaching Malta and running aground. Quickly, three things that happen in this section. First, the crew tries to abandon ship, they try to, to let down the ship's boat and escape. But Paul tells them that if they leave the ship, they'll die. Apparently, that was part of what the angel told him. Secondly, Paul feeds them breakfast. And this is an interesting passage that some scholars look at and see a strikingly similar language to our observance of the Lord's Supper. Because Paul takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he eats it, and then he gives it to the others. But regardless of how this sounds and what this looks like, there's nothing here that, that tells us that this was, in fact, communion. In the context of the story, this was an expression of faith that God was with them still and that he was going to keep his promise to save them. And so let's enjoy the provision of food from him before we hit the rocks ahead, as he said we would. And then they run aground on Malta and are saved. And at the last moment, the soldiers planned to kill the escaping prisoners so they wouldn't get away. But because of the favor that Paul had gained with the centurion, he thwarted that plan. And so we read at the end of the last verse of this chapter, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. God made a promise to Paul through the angel, and God kept that promise. To the very last soul, all, 276 souls on board, rescue not one was lost every single year without fail between midsummer and late fall we turn on the news and we hear reports of storms brewing off the coast of Africa and we listen to those reports and we watch them as they grow into massive hurricanes that end up threatening our coastland. This is part of life living on the east coast of America. Likewise, we know that hardships, suffering, trials, disappointments and, and the like, that these are the storms of life that are simply part of life in a fallen world. You see, this, this is not a promise that we won't be beaten and battered by storms. But it is a promise that through faith in God, we will weather these storms to the end. Someone said that we're either in a storm or we just came out of a storm or we're about to go into a storm. Regardless of what it is for you, storms will come, they're gonna come, but God is faithful. God is trustworthy, God is present, and He is sovereign. And because of that, we can know without equivocation that He'll keep all of His promises. And so church, let's expect the storms and let's cling to Jesus when they come and be reminded that he is able and his love for us and his children is steadfast. And may the promises of his word undergird our faith and serve as sea anchors for our soul when those storms come. All to his glory. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ. Perhaps the Lord, through his spirit, has made you aware of the coming storm of judgment. And that you have no hope of escape. That your ability to be a good person and attend religious activities a lot will do nothing to save you from the raging storm. But perhaps the Spirit has revealed to you the goodness of God in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, as a lifeboat. Will you trust in Christ? Stop trusting in yourself to be rescued from that storm and trust in Jesus. Be remade into a worshiper of His. And look forward one day to be reunited with your maker. Father we thank you so much for the truth of this word. It seems odd to, be, to, to, to thank you for the reminder that storms will come. Because that is an ominous thought. Most of us in this room have walked through storms. And can give testimony to your faithfulness every step of the way. May we look at Paul's example and likewise be encouraged from the promises that you make to us. God, would you make us a people of your word? That this wouldn't just be something that we tote back and forth to church, but that we would saturate our lives with it. And that the promises that you have so preciously made to us, we will cling to and that they will undergird our faith, and they will serve as sea anchors for our soul when those storms come, so that we might weather them for your glory. Do that in us for your own magnification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.